I thought I pressed it already, but uh, yeah, I heard about uh, I heard I heard about that off of Jordy's show. Which before we get back into the real football stuff, so is Jordy like really mad at Derek or not? My understanding of the situation is that whatever happened to cause him in the negotiations that caused him to leave 104.5 so abruptly, he felt like Derek didn't, I guess, come to his aid or his defense or help him as much as he, he perceives that Derek could have. That's my understanding of the situation. But again, that's not a full read. I do, however, have confirmation that that, that incident did take All right. So, um, yeah, that's not a good look for O. Uh, so he he really does know that this is it. But that's the thing. I don't know that this is it. Because this is the thing that I've been pondering all week. And and you can correct me if I'm wrong. What if, what if we're all assessing the situation in a, the wrong way? Okay. Your best two corners are out for the season. Your best wide receiver is out for the season. The guy who was going to be your starting quarterback broke his arm on a fishing trip before his training camp even began. Your best running back's been academically ineligible all season and will continue to be academically ineligible. Um, your your offensive line has two good players on it. Your off, Well, your offensive line has one good player on it. Your defensive line has one good player on it. And you're playing – freshmen and sophomores at most of the key positions now. Any other AD at any other school at any other point in time would look at the totality of all of that and say, okay, look, things got out of hand. Y'all had way more than your fair share of injuries. Let's come back again next year, see what, how this plays out, what happens. Because you have the excuse of all the injuries. Like, to me, this only comes down to does Woodward want to make a move? Because he has justifications to do both. He has on-the-field and off-the-field justifications for firing up. And he has on-the-field and off-the-field reasons to keep him, excuses to keep him. So it it really comes down to what does Scott Woodward want to do? What is he inclined to do? And is he inclined to do something today that he might not be inclined to do in say November because he strikes me with his hiring practices as the kind of guy who has one name not five not ten not twenty one name and he basically goes to that one name and does not leave the front porch until that person says yes so what if that one person on his list that one person isn't gettable this year but they might be gettable next year, next November, or even next September. So, you have the built-in reason to keep, oh, hey, all the injuries. And then you just can three three games of the season like you did last, last time. Well, Warren, it was uh, um, your boy that everybody hates, that can't list, that, that hired, oh, um, Damn it! What's his name? Oliva. Oliva. I was looking in his face, um, but if last year didn't happen, I think he could get by with 
everything you're saying now, because you're completely right. The, the team is devastated right now with injuries. But last year happened, and granted, that was, I mean, everybody, everybody had to deal with COVID, and COVID hit LSU harder with the opt-outs and all, and, and then the injuries. And basically, at the end of last year, we're saying the same thing we're saying right now. We're starting a bunch of freshmen and sophomores that have no business playing. So you get a mulligan. Well, you only get one mulligan. And uh, part of that mulligan was saying, well, my defensive coordinator sucked ass. I got to get another one. And I don't I don't think the offensive coordinator sucked ass. I think he did well for what he had. And actually looking at this year compared to last, I think he did a damn good job. But he decided to step away. So you got to reset with your both of your coordinators and half of your staff. You turned your staff over about as much as you can in a single year. Yes. So he can't do that again. And I don't he's it, it looks it looks like he has two first time play callers on both sides. I think and but well, I think one has shown more promise than the other. I think they both eventually can probably be both really good play callers, but they needed more experience. Um, so even if, even if Scott was inclined to let Ed stay, Ed has to stay with the hand he's dealt now, which nobody, hey, cat, <laughs> which, uh, nobody is, nobody is pleased with. And, but I think you, if, if it were only the on the field issues, I think the, um, I think the excuses for leaving, letting him stay were there. But if you're, it seems like the off the field stuff is what's really getting everybody to go. What? Wait, hold on. Told you if they were conscious, it was always it was gonna be a thing. Yes. 
I've dealt with that for two. I dealt with that for uh, 14 days. So I know not a fun time. <laughs> oh man. But uh, yeah, I think the, uh, it's the off the field issues that are like really rating on, particularly on Woodward because he, he strikes me as a, he strikes me as the type of guy that knows that the football coach is like the head person for the whole university. And I don't, one, I don't think he, he likes how egg is down anyway. And two, then you add in all the other things that Ed is doing that uh, he would probably find unbecoming. And knowing that as an AD, you make your mark by hiring a football coach. I think all those things combined with on the field stuff uh, would, makes me believe that he would make a move. Now, your thing about having one name, that seems about right for him too. And he likes making these big, splashy, um, these big, splashy hires. So I don't know who that big, splashy hire could be this year. Um, besides him being fascinated with uh, with Jimbo, which, God, I do not want Jimbo at all. Well, Jimbo just signed a contract, massive contract extension in but, the summer. And yeah, after what he did last week, there's no chance of them letting him walk away. Well, so. I mean, yeah, they A&M can throw more money at him. But the, the thing about reworking his contract is they just extended the contract Scott gave him initially, initially, which has no damn buyout in it. So if if Jumbo wants to walk, he can walk and he doesn't have to pay anybody anything. I mean, it'd be interesting. That doesn't seem to be the name that he. I think he's most fascinated with because I think that's a lateral move for Jimbo and I think that's a lateral move for Woodward. I think that the, the name he's, he's focusing on more and more is uh, up in Happy Valley, a guy who, you know, has coached in the SEC before, has had success at the worst program in the SEC. He has spent the last eight years at a resource-rich program in one of the best football conferences in the country and has led Penn State to multiple Rose Bowls. Um, he, you know, he's had offensive coordinators. He, he's, he's done, had success across multiple coordinators and, of course, across multiple quarterbacks. Um, so I think that uh, for those reasons, James Franklin is his target. Um, I just don't necessarily know if the folks up in Happy Valley are are ready to move, make a move because, you know, they could just bring Bill O'Brien back because, you know, O'Brien's down in Tuscaloosa and they weren't, they were totally happy with O'Brien while he was up there. He just left for an NFL job. Personally, I'm all for Mark Sanchez as the head football coach at LSU, but unfortunately I don't think he's going to get that opportunity because he's going to be the head football coach at USC. So, um, he'd be a little bit preoccupied. Um, the other name that I would suggest Mr. Woodward take a look at is a guy up at Pittsburgh right now because, uh, because I think that dude would uh, make hell of a, a coach if he transitioned to college. Oh, uh, Tom? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's down here for every pro day. He knows, the, he, knows this, he knows the country. He knows the territory. He likes our players. He likes the talent. Oh, let, let me say that uh... – of the two of us, it's, it's going to be mighty ironic that you're the one that has both the black coaches, and I am I am not. And 
my reason is and my my reason has nothing to do with football and everything to do with the people involved down here. And it's already it, I know it's already a lot for these people to have a black president of the university. I don't know if they're ready to have a black president of the university and a black football coach. I just don't think they got it in them. I could be, you know, I could be selling them short, but I really don't think I am. So while I, the two names you mentioned are more than qualified, I'm still iffy on Franklin. Just like, I think he can do it, but he does do The man things. hired Joe Moorhead. <laughs> if, you, if you need any like assertion of like, you know, risk aversion, the man hired Joe, uh, Joe Moorhead, who is now at Oregon doing great things again after two years at Mississippi State doing absolutely nothing. I mean, he he passes the test of uh, of hiring well, which is something which is pretty much going to be as downfall. It, I don't know. It's just everybody has their weaknesses. The fact that you know, I don't know. It might it may just be the fact that you know Penn State has a ceiling, and I'm not really acknowledging that it has a ceiling with everything that he's able to do. I think he should be able to like break through the ceiling. And who knows? Maybe he does. He does it this year, and that's the thing. But the only he thing always, he hasn't done at Penn State is win win a Big Ten championship game and and go to the Rose and win the Rose Bowl. Like he's played in the Rose Bowl twice. Uh, the the one Rose Bowl with Sam Darnold versus uh, uh, Saquon Barkley a few years ago. Like he's been to the Rose Bowl twice. He's been to the Big Ten championship game at least once or twice. Like he's done really successful things they're building on the foundation that o'brien laid um you know I, I just that's the name i keep hearing i i hear people down in lafayette yelling for yeah, napier but like, like yeah i just don't see scott woodward hiring the head coach from louisiana lafayette i just don't see it yeah. I mean, I could be wrong, but like the man's getting ready to fire a purebred Louisiana boy for being a purebred Louisiana boy for all the other things he's doing. I don't know necessarily that he would want to go ahead and just hire the guy from ULL. Because that, and, and to, to your point about race, um, I just will point out that uh, we have lived in an era where Mississippi State, of all places, has uh, hired an African American head coach and let him go for like five years. Hello. 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 All right, now I can now we go. I mean, the other name I keep hearing is is Napier, and I don't think Woodward's the guy who's gonna go get the guy from ULL especially considering the guy he's about ready to can. So um, I also don't think the fan base would take too well with that. Tomlin would be great, although you'd have to wait longer for Tomlin um, because you'd have to wait for the pro season to finish up. But man can flash two Super Bowl rings and he's been in another. And, you know, with the most established and one of the most iconic brands in the history of pro football. And he can show success 14 years without a losing record in the pros. 
Um, you know, how I would recruit, I'm sure he could put together a hell of a staff to do that. You know, but when you, it doesn't hurt when you walk into a, a kid's home and you can flash three Super Bowl rings, you know, or two Super Bowl rings. So, you know, um, I think that's what would make him an attractive candidate. All that being said, I just, like, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to me what Woodward does because right now I, the anticipation I have feels like I'm walking into a Johnny Jones-led LSU basketball game with, like, a thousand people in the stands, no energy, and everybody just knowing the guy is about to get fired. I think that's accurate. I sat courtside and watched watched uh, Joe Oliva intently stare at Johnny Jones, and we all knew what was coming. And by the end, there were only about 500 people in the PMAC, and, and it wasn't COVID. And that's kind of the feeling I get about tomorrow is like, I feel like I'm walking into a situation where no one believes we're going to win the game. It's just a matter of how much we lose the game by and everybody believes the coach is fired. So in the words of Panaski, just go have fun. <laughs> uh, this is it's so wow. It's so, so, so wild. Well, got to be able to do it across multiple coordinators and multiple quarterbacks. Wait, wait. Clemson is in a dogfight with Syracuse. Yeah, because Clemson can only score like eight points a game. Yeah, they got 17. Yeah, they, they, they can't score. They have no offense. Like, they, they made an easy transition from, you know, Deshaun Watson to T-Law. <laughs> They're having a really rougher, much rougher transition this time. I mean, even Taj Boyd had better success at Clemson than this dude is right now. So, I mean, Taj Boyd is the one that beat us. Yep. That, that, that's what's that the one that I, I credit starting their little run was beating us. Good job. Yep. And then because the next year they beat Ohio State in the Orange Bowl and, uh, and Dabo was like, we're the first school from the state of South Carolina to win a BCS game. It also wouldn't be the first time that Syracuse has beaten Clemson in the last five years. So This is true. This is true. But this is like, uh, if, if they lose this Syracuse team, uh, I, I think some people don't really start questioning Dabo do. It'll be interesting. In five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Mark Sanchez. Oh, oh wait. Wrong podcast. Never mind. Start over again. Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brian C. Wood. And with me this fine evening is my good friend and co-host. If this was a visual medium, you could see the disgust on my face when he does this. Chad Mitz. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of genre movie news. So, Chad, we are on the verge of DC fandom. Posters abound. Teases from the director abound. All things DC on film coming to our screens for four hours tomorrow. What are your anticipations for this trailer that has been hyped beyond belief for The Batman? Um... I, I've really tempered everything about the Batman only because 
Um, I mean, at this point, we're looking at March. So, and we we got the one trailer, which, man, it seems, was this, was that this year? Was it last year? That was a year ago. Know. Was it a year ago? It's been a whole year mm-hmm. since we got something for, for the Batman. Was that last fandom? Yep, and that was a very extensive trailer itself. Yeah, and they were still, like, I think they were still shooting, are they? Yeah, that was in the middle of all that bad press about uh, Batman and Catwoman hooking up on set on the Batmobile and yeah, him getting her pregnant that. and all the things. <laughs> I forgot about all that crazy stuff. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I've tempered everything about the Batman just because it, it's because of COVID and everything. It seems so far off. But um, I'm I'm curious to see more of what we got. Like, I liked the first trailer. Um, and I think I'm going to like what they're going for here. I have my issues with it uh, that I'm going to put aside and, and judge all of this on its own merits. But uh, it's people have described this as the first time like a real, real, real deal Batman fan is taking on Batman in the movies. Um, so what does that look like? And Reese says that he wants to make a quintessential Batman story. So what does that look like when a Batman fan says that and is making this movie? I'm hoping this trailer addresses some of that stuff. And how does how do all these characters like fit into what he's trying to do? Because we have, I mean, for the first iteration of this Batman, we have a lot of characters. We have Batman himself. We got a new Batman, a new Alfred, a new Commissioner Gordon. We're doing Riddler this time in, in this like uh, twisted way. We've got uh, the beginnings of Penguin. We've got Catwoman. Uh, and then there's the mobsters I think are still involved. So there's a lot going on. How does all that fit together to make this movie? So I'm hoping the trailer like gives us a clue into that. Uh, just a clue into it. I don't need everything, but you know, like progress us into getting to March. I mean, the thing that you keep hearing, or the the the, the name that keeps getting thrown around, is the Long Halloween, um, because that's that's a story, a Batman story that everybody loves, but also it's a story where he is a detective by nature, and that story which is something that, that they've been really publicizing is that he's going to be a detective, that they want to emphasize the world's greatest detective aspect of Batman, which really hasn't been explored on film very often. Um, but like the idea has been floated around that he has, that the villains have clues and that ultimately he has to put the clues together to figure out the answer, uh, which would be you know interesting to see. It's just, I think we make too much out of like, oh, there's so many people in this movie. I, I really think that these are going to be introductory moments, especially especially considering you're doing a full-fledged HBO series on Penguin and a full-fledged HBO series on Go- Gotham, the Gotham PD. So like you, you can flush out the world a little bit more there and you still have two more films. So, I mean, there's that too. Um, I like Reeves. I like what he's done in Hollywood and I like the kind of movies that he makes. And I like the grittiness and the brutality of that trailer uh, that we, that he put out. Um, uh, but 
as far as like what I'm expecting from this trailer, I'm just expecting more Catwoman, more Batman, and an introduction to what kind of games the Riddler, this version of the Riddler is playing. Yeah, the, the, that seems to be the biggest question. And of course, people have gone to the internet and in true Heath Ledger's not my joker kind of fashion, they're uh, sharing their, um, what I can best describe as ignorant opinions of the Riddler because we really don't know what this guy's going to be like. And judging him just by what you've seen so far, and I guess it ratcheted up because they had that official post to drop, what, yesterday? I mean, he doesn't look like any Riddler we've seen before, but, you know, I didn't expect him to. So, but it's just how is he used in this film? We won't know until we see the film, but, you know, people are already judging. And normally when that happens in these movies, uh, it comes back to bite them. Well, it comes back and then they pretend that they never said it. So they can cover their own asses. So, like, here's here's the thing. Reeves makes gritty, grounded, raw, intense movies. And he can do it with special effects and he can do it without it. I mean, what he did in the two eight films is amazing. And it's it's really sad to me that that Apes is gonna end up probably getting the Disney Plus treatment for uh for, for Disney. <laughs> you know, that they're not gonna invest in another film trilogy, that they're just gonna use the the branded IP to do a, a Disney Plus show. But what Reeves uh what Reeves did was really build on the foundation that was laid um, and he just hit it out of the park and him and Andy Serkis working together. Um, I, I really just think that like he's going to deliver something that is unique and good and interesting and it'll be enough to get people wanting more and then he'll take it up another notch in the sequel. Um, I think the pattern Robert Pattinson, if you've seen Lighthouse or any of the other indie stuff he's been doing the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years, you'll know he's a better actor now than what he was when he was playing the guy in Twilight. You have to give actors room to grow. And like the kid, the guy from 2005, he's not the same guy he was in 2005. He's not the same actor. Like you grow, you challenge yourself. Oscar Isaac spoke to this this week uh, in a Vanity Fair article about uh, Moon Knight that he said it was the most challenging role that he's ever taken on. And he was eager to get on set and to try it because it was going to give him room to do different and interesting things he hadn't done before and push him as an actor to try new things. And, you know, Pattinson has been in the indie world for a good while now to see him come back to blockbuster filmmaking as a more mature actor in this role, I think is going to be a phenomenal experience. But I mean, I think, people have got to give it room to like be its thing. It's not going to be whatever, you know, release the bat black was going to be like, you've got to just take it and judge it by what it is and how it's going to, how it's going to react, how it's going to, how it's going to look and how it's going to feel. And you can feel free to make your own judgments. I mean, Lord knows from the very first teaser for the dark Knight, people made judgments from the first teaser trailer for dark Knight rises. People made judgments like, Anne Hathaway's Catwoman was a very big trending topic on Twitter for 24 hours after all that stuff dropped. Like, you know, people repeatedly said they couldn't understand a damn thing Bane was saying, but that's normal for Tom Hardy. But, you know, 
we got we got to just see what it is. Got to judge it for its own merits, and we've got to let it play out. And the commentary on Twitter, film Twitter for 24 hours, will be what it is. But come next February and March, everybody will be amped up. Uh, everybody will be in the theater, and everybody will see it. So, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's I think that's the best way to to approach these films. You have to judge them for what they are, not what you want them to be. A lot of people can't do that. Uh, and Especially DC fandom that is too tied to the man that calls himself Zack Snyder, who has disciples and prophets going forth and spreading his good message of the Snyderverse. I will say DC fans. Uh, I think those Snyder are, fans. Snyder fans are, are more apt because I am a DC fan and I... Uh, I do not want the Snyderverse to ever come back. At this point, I think I'm almost ready to let go of uh, a Henry Cavill Superman pipe dream. I think it's, I mean, we are, we are 10 years from the time they act. 10 years ago, right now, they were shooting that movie. Uh, I know it didn't come out until 2003, I mean, 2013, but they were shooting it in, in 2011. So I'm about ready to let go of that pipe dream. A lot of other people are not, but and and they say and they they the the Zach fans are not gonna give this a chance, you know, and that's fine. But DC fans, hopefully, they will and make their own judgments, and then the broader audience will do the same. I think that's all you can ask for right now. Like again, I said I've had I have I have issues with not with this film. But with the overall journey, I guess, journey of DC at this point. But I'm not going to dwell into that right now. But I'm going to approach this film as it is, as the Batman, take the world that they're giving me, and then decide if I like it or not. That's the only thing you can do. Indeed. Now, let's talk about what Mr. Affleck had to say about his experience filming The Flash. Because he ruffled some feathers today by saying, or the other this week by saying that, like, uh, man, that was a really fun experience. You know, if uh, things have been that light and easy on Justice League, I might have stuck around for a bit more. But you know, just didn't happen that way. It was the very interesting product of two directors. So how 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 bad are they taking these comments? I I saw that he said stuff, but I just didn't. I didn't have the energy to go hunt down what the the crazy people were saying about it. I mean, the zealots are very much like, you know, you guys, you guys forced Zach out. And if Zach had stayed, the process would have been smooth and he would have wanted to continue playing Batman. And he would have hit on a story eventually for his Batman movie. And he would have, we would have gotten the backflack in his own movie and the Snyderverse would have been blooming and growing. Had you not, you know, cut the cord way too early. Okay, so to that I say, um, well, have you seen the the trailer for the Tender Bar that he's in that came out yes. yesterday? Yes. And leading up to that, every time I've seen a picture of Ben Affleck, I've been like, man, he looks really good and like really happy. And I didn't really, I mean, I didn't pay attention to him leading up to things and tell the whole Batman stuff. And he never look like that at any point doing anything with Batman. And then I saw that trailer and he's like 
fantastic. And again, he looks really good and he looks really, really happy. I don't, I don't think, I don't think Batman helps him when he was going through all that stuff. I think he was in a bad place himself and everything that was going on around Batman with Zach did not help him at all. And that is what drove him, what drove him out. If he was as he is now with Batman, he probably would have stuck around. He probably would have hit on the story because he's in a, he's just in a better place himself. I don't know if he could have gotten to that place with Batman. I don't know if being Batman will keep, let him be in that place. So at this point, people just have to let, you know, let it go. It's, it's not, the, the situation was that didn't help it, but Ben had his own things going on that were, were affecting everything else around him. And, you know, the window might have, the window's probably closed, but at least he's, you get to see him come back. And it sounds like he enjoyed coming back and appreciated the role. And I think that's a good thing. I think him recognizing the goodness of the role and having a chance to do it one more time and do it in, in the state that he's in is only going to be good. Yes, it might um, get people thinking about what if, what could have been, but we're not there now. Um, and again, take what you're getting, take what you're given. Um, in this case, take what you're given because I, I truly believe Ben was in a bad spot and he could, he couldn't be Batman. He would be, he would be, he said to himself, he, somebody sold it to him. Like, if you do this, you're going to be miserable. He couldn't have done it. So Except that, except that he couldn't have done it and at that point in his life and he had to move on. So now we have to move on. It sucks because he probably could have been like, you know, he could have been people's, you know, example of what Batman is, but it wasn't meant to be. He's in a better place as a human being. I think that's the best thing you can take from that. And, you know, to reiterate, at the time, of the uh, whole Dawn of Justice, uh, Dawn of Justice Suicide Era, Dawn of Justice Suicide Squad, and uh, Justice League run that he was doing, um, he was dealing with alcoholism and a divorce from a woman he had been married to for 14 years, and all of the things that come with that, and when you heal and you grow out of those circumstances and you find yourself again, it helps. And it puts you in a better place in your life, which helps you be in a better place creatively. I mean, not everybody can be Edgar Allan Poe and strung out and write in crazy insane poems that people memorize for 150 years to come. Like, some people have to have that inner joy and peace and happiness in their life in order to be creative. And I don't think it was a matter of him not being able to tell a good Batman story or know what Batman story he wanted to tell. I think it was he wasn't in the place in his life to bring forth the creativity to come up with the good Batman story. And I think that, the, as you said, the stuff with Zach, I mean... We've heard horror stories about sets before when things like me and you 
lived through the Fantastic Four of 2015. We've heard about horror stories on sets. I can't imagine wanting to go to work every day in that environment. I don't, I mean, yes, Miles Tiller and Michael B. Jordan were not the household names and the surefire big name actors they are now when they were here in Baton Rouge filming that movie. But like, it couldn't have been fun for a young exuberant actor to go to work every day in that work, toxic work environment. Call it what it is. And so when you're dealing with alcoholism and a divorce and your, your personal life is spiraling, and then you go to work and you're dealing with all kinds of toxic issues and battle lines are being drawn and you're being forced to choose one side or the other and a guy is getting fired and you're having to answer questions about it and the internet's ablaze because you look sad during one particular international press tour when you've been up for 24 straight hours and all of the things, like... That's, that's not that can't be good for you mentally or emotionally, regardless of what you're struggling with. So, you know, if your workplace isn't isn't great and your personal life sucks, how can you be creative? And, you know, now he's he's back with J-Lo. He feels regenerate, regenerated, uh, revived. He is being more creative. He's doing this movie that everybody is looking forward to. And it seems that he turns in another great performance. Him and Damon wrote the movie, I believe. No, it wasn't this one. It was, uh, it's another movie. They didn't write this one. I thought it was this one. Yeah, but the, even the fact that he got back together with Damon to write a movie again after 25 years since Goodwill Hunting, you know, like, you know, dude's, dude was an Oscar winning screenwriter and an Oscar winning and should have been an Oscar winning director. He, he wrote and directed and produced a Best Picture winner. I mean, dude's creative. Can't tell me that dude couldn't have come up with a great Batman story that would have been riveting, but you know, life happens, man. Yeah, yeah. Some things happen outside of your control, you know, and it happened to him. It, but he's gotten himself back on track, and that's that. I think that's more important than Batman. And I know a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around that, but that's the way you should look at it. Indeed. So let's talk about another young actor who came out and made some news this week by saying that uh, he was treating his movie like the end of a franchise. That's right, Chad. It's time to talk about our weekly Spider-Man fix. What say you about Tom Holland's quote that uh, him and John Watts approach this like a trip, like a end of a franchise? So those comments are uh, extremely loaded when you only in the context of Spider-Man and in the context of this, what has happened between Disney and Sony. Uh, so to, to really understand why people are like up in arms about this, it's to understand where those two companies are. Remember, uh, right after Far From Home, Sony said, that's it. We're done. We take a Spider-Man back. We're out. And uh, according to stories, Tom Holland, Tom Holland had to cry to both Sony and Disney to get them to, to come back and work it out. And when they worked it out, they worked it out where uh, they got one more movie and Spider-Man appears in one, one other MCU film. So this is that one other movie and we haven't heard anything else about extending the deal. Also as part, also to consider with that, um, right after i think it was right after far from home or either right before sony released venom 
and Venom was hugely successful. Venom, uh, it was after Venom. Venom was Venom was 2018, October of 2018. So yeah, and Sp- Far From Home was 2019. So yeah, so Venom came out, and then Far From Home came out. So when so Sony is like our, and before that, um, into yes, the Spider Verse. Into the Spider Verse came. Yes, it was not the financial success those other two were, but it was uh, critically critical success. Yeah, and brought them an Oscar. Yeah, and uh, and it, I think it's done very well on streaming on Netflix and like and the like. So Sony's sitting there like we've got all we've made into the Spider Verse. We've made Venom. Yeah, Marvel. We got uh, Marvel doing Far From Home, but that pulled in a billion dollars, and now. Even to 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 further solidify that, Venom Two has come out, and it's um, I haven't checked the latest numbers, but when it first dropped, it was it made the most money for October release period, and the most money in our current COVID time. So Sony's got a string of hits, of spider hits. So you couldn't see where they would be like, you know. Maybe it's the Marvel deal has run has done what it needed to do. It got us on solid footing. It's run, but it's run its course, and now it's time for us to go our our ways. So when you ha- when you have all that in mind, and then you hear Tom Holland's comments about we're treating this as um, you know the end of the franchise, and specifically when he's there, I think I don't think it was from the same article, but Zendaya was talking about. Um, the last scene that she shot with Tom and Jacob and how they were all emotional because they might not ever get to do it again. And I think she specifically said that she might not be acting with Tom again. Uh, when you hear all of those things, it just, and have all that context, of course, the first thing you think is like, okay, so after this one, Sony is pulling the plug and taking Spider-Man back. And I, I think it's a mistake if that if that were to be true. I think it's a mistake uh, because this Spider-Man is so ingrained in the MCU. They've gone out of their way to like carefully weave him into the fabric of M- the MCU going forward. So to rip him out, while I think the MCU would be fine, I think the Spider-Man will suffer. But uh, Sony's like Sony is within their rights, and they think, and if they're thinking that we've been successful, we can do this on our own now. You know, there's nothing we can really do to stop them. So that's my first thoughts. My second thought is that he could very well he could he could just really be meaning this is the end of this part of the trilogy, and they'll be starting something new with this Spider-Man, and he's still in the MCU, but we won't know until we see the movie. So that's the optimistic view. Uh, Sony doesn't give me anything to be optimistic about. So I'm leaning with the former rather than the latter, but I'm hoping for the latter. I mean, you are dealing with the same people who said, and I quote, we have Feige's playbook now. So that's, that's their rationale and that's the way that they're thinking. Uh, Let There Be Carnage opened to $90 million here in the United States of America and currently has a 75, a 77 to 22 
domestic to international uh, uh, split and is poised to cross $200 million this weekend. That's, those are good, um, you know, those are good COVID numbers. I'll keep saying those are good COVID numbers until we get to a point where they're not called COVID numbers anymore. But, you know, they, look, they got a hit with Venom. There's no denying that. And as dumb as I think that franchise is, uh, the second it is one, dumb. It, it is dumb. But the second one knows that it's dumb and it plays into all the good parts of the dumbness. So, I mean, I can't knock them for seeing what worked and deciding, hey, we're just going to do everything that worked and forget all the other stuff. That was very smart of them. Now, is that having, having Feige's playbook? No, I, I don't think so. Um, I know Pascal has worked very close with him, but she, I mean, she's her own producer. I don't think. I don't think just by working with the MCU like that, that uh, she's going to be able to, to replicate the results. And honestly, everybody at Sony, the major players with Spider-Man are still the same major players from all the previous Spider-Man. So all those previous missteps, all those guys are there. Um, I would Venom seems like an outlier to me, mostly because Tom Hardy is so invested in it and doing stuff with it. Into the Spider-Verse seems like an outlier to me in the fact that it's animated. So they're like, you know, go do whatever you want. For some reason, people don't, you know. And Lord Miller left their own devices is really good. Hey, Kathleen Kennedy, who'd imagine? But <laughs> um, here, here's the thing for me. I believe that Sony's next move is not a, a standalone Spider-Man movie. I believe that their next move is a Venom versus Spider-Man movie. The question is whether that exists within the MCU or not. And I'd lean toward it not existing in the MCU. But the thing is that the part of the quote that caught me, caught my eye, was not about the, I treated this like the end of a franchise part of the quote. The part of the quote that caught my eye was the part where he said, even if I did come back, it would be a completely different iteration or version of this character, which to me, a lot of you can take that and interpret it a million different ways. Mm -hmm. But the way that I interpreted it was characters been through some shit. Characters about to go through some more shit and is going to cause some really bad harm, like universe splitting harm um, that has consequences and changes people. And also age changes people. And you're talking about a character who is going to leave high school and adolescence at the end of this film and go forth as an adult. And by its very nature, an adult Peter Parker, or even a 25-year-old Peter Parker, with the life experience that he's had from the age of 16 when he started hanging out with the Avengers, is going to be different. So, like... That's the part to me that was really interesting was the idea of Tom Holland doing something that Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire never got an opportunity to do, 
which was mature in the role, to bring a different perspective, to grow into the role. That, okay, I've done three films. I've also done three Marvel movies. Like, we, it's a six-film journey with this character that we brought to this point. And if we come back and re-revisit him, however we do that, if it's a Spider-Man versus Venom movie or if it's an MCU movie, however we do that, it's going to be different than what it has been in these three movies. And I, that's the part that's intriguing and interesting to me. It's an actor of, of um, Holland's caliber um, doing, you know, excited about the opportunity of doing different work with the character at some point. That's more, that's more important to me than I treated it like the end of a franchise. Well, no shit. It's the third movie in the trilogy. Of course you treated it like a kid, trilogy gap. I think if any, if anyone else would have said that, I think that more people latched on to what you did. It's just that the, the uncertainty of Sony and, and Marvel and the Spider-Man deal, uh, I do like creatively. I do think what you're pointing out is more interesting, and I I do think after this third movie, it's time for this Peter to be. I don't want to say more serious because Spider Man always has a bit of levity to the character, but it's you know it's time for the transition from high school to being a young adult, whether that's being college or whatever. But you know, I mean, when I started reading Spider Man. Uh, he was probably a little bit older than he is. He would be in at the end of this movie, but he, but he has matured. He's not the high school kid. He's like, when I started reading, he was like the grad student, uh, but he was, I mean, he's still making those stupid jokes. He's still talking a mile a minute, but he's just grown up a bit. And I think I can, I mean, Tom Holland is really 25. I can see him taking the next step to being closer to the young adult that he really is with the character. And it's not like he has a shitty working relationship with Sony. I mean, he finally agrees to do their Uncharted movie that they've been trying to get off the ground for 10 years. This is true. But no matter who wants him to do what, uh, and I think they'd be foolish to not have him back as Spider-Man. I think this is is his last movie on his contract. And I don't care who, who it is. You're going to have to pay him a whole lot more than you paid him to start with. Well, yeah, it, it's it's the NFL rookie deal, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's that fifth-year option gets picked up, and then you're like, oh, crap, what do we do now? Because, you know, we got to pay him because he's had performed well enough for us to pick up the fifth-year option. But uh, this is going to set us back quite a bit. You know, hello, Joe Flacco, after one good season, getting paid and dismantling that Ravens team. <laughs> yeah, and if um... – if No Way Home goes the way, if it's the first one of COVID to actually perform like a normal, regular movie, which the more things go, the more it looks If it's like, the first COVID movie to hit a billion. Yeah. I, I, I don't know about the China release, but I, I think it's going to do, I think more and more people, we've seen people will go see the big event movies and there's going to be no bigger event than going to see Spider-Man around Christmas. So if that movie hits a billion and it hits a billion during COVID, I mean, if I'm his age and I'm just pointing at the sign, like, so um, before him, you had zero billion dollar movies. After him, you have 
two. And what do they have in common? Him. So um, just back up the trucks and I'll let you know when to stop. Yeah. And, you know, I think Sony will understand that. And it it's going to be interesting. It just generally is going to be interesting to me what they decide to do. And, you know, he clearly is committed or willing to do it for multiple years or multiple times. I just, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. But you know who's happy about being in Far From uh, No Way Home? Who? Zendaya. Because you know what that means? Not only does she get to, did, was she around her boyfriend for a long period of time, but also she'll actually make some back end money because she's about to have a movie come out next Thursday, at least finally come out next Thursday here in the States, that has uh, kind of, you know, not been doing so well in the international box office. And so maybe she needs the, uh, the, the boost. Okay, so I have purposely been uh, avoiding the Doom box office. Every time somebody would drop numbers, they seem really good, and I just glance at them, and I just stop. So I have absolutely no idea how I was doing overseas. Uh, so you can, yeah, you can fill me in on that. Well, um, I'm glad that you asked, uh, which, by the way, it appears that Miss Zendaya is only in like the first eight minutes of this movie. She voices the, uh, she does the voiceover for it and then is, uh, then is gone for the rest of the movie. So um, she apparently is the focus, however, of, uh, she apparently is the focus, however, of the, uh, of the sequel. So there's that. Uh, and they've, as you sent me the link, uh, apparently uh, Warner's has committed to to be in view that he will get his sequel. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, they already they already said that he would. So, yay, I guess. Sweet Jesus, this film's two hours and thirty five minutes. Um, oh, I thought it'd be longer than that. It, it's probably gonna feel longer. So, internationally, so far, it has made one hundred and seventeen point six. Okay. It has been out for exactly one month overseas. Let's see. I'm trying to think what could be a fair comparison from COVID. And I mean, all of the things I can think of off the top of my head, I would just assume would do better than Doom because it's Marvel movies and the fast movies. But that's all we got to go on. And those they those debuted in the states and in the UK day and date, and then rolled out internationally over the poor course of months. This is like they've already hit France, Germany, Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, Denmark, Ukraine, Sweden, Belgium, Norway, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Lithuania, and Iceland. <laughs> and now they're getting to the UK and the United States. Um, so far, its top gross is uh, $19 million in France, where it opened with $7.2 million, $7. million a month ago today. Hmm. Well, um, I don't know. I still stand by the fact that I, it's a, it, this is a will hard... You, I will put this to you, sir, Chad Metz. Mm-hmm. Will will Dune open on the next weekend with more or less than nineteen point nine billion dollars? Okay. 
Well, we have to factor in it is it is day and date with uh, HBO Max, so that already takes a hit. But nineteen, I mean, I think that's reasonable, but I don't know if Warner Brothers would think that is reasonable for a movie of this magnitude when more people seem to be going to the theaters. Keep in mind that we just said that Let There Be Carnage, uh, a film that is basically a cartoon when compared to the massive budget of Dune, um, did $90 million opening weekend in the United States and cast a record during COVID times. So if a $20 million opening, roughly, would not be great. No, but well, it's not going to be great in the context of that Venom, thinking about Venom, which they can't get away from, but they also have to, I mean, there's no choice now. They have to stand by the decision of day and date and understand that they're not going to get the huge payday. So everybody has to understand that and everybody has to not bitch and moan and complain that it's going to do under $20 million. They just need to say, we knew this was going to happen. The HBO Max numbers are good. Um, even if they aren't good, just lie and say that they're good. And we are committed to Dune 2 and a full theatrical release. And I think that's how you have to play it. You're the, I, I hate this. I mean, it doesn't sound like good business, but I think they have to basically um, double down on a loser because I think Dune, I think Dune regularly would have been a loser. I think COVID is going to save Dune too, but because of the, because of COVID and their release strategy, I think it's going to make them double down and make Dune two, and Dune two is going to come out and it's going to be a money loss, like the first Dune would have been. So they will be two time losers because of this decision, but they have no choice. They they're in a, they're in a corner over it. And the thing is, you're not getting the critical responses that generate an awards play. That's the thing. Like you're not getting the award notices out there that you would that would justify you doing this. Like that's the thing. If you were getting like award worthy buzz out of this, where you could potentially ride it to an Oscar campaign, that might be worth it. But like, dude, we're talking about the title card of the movie saying Dune Part One. The title card of the movie says Doom Part 1, and then the movie just cuts to black and doesn't really end. The man clearly made a two-part movie. So, like, you're kind of screwed. I can't, I can't believe that's the way they chose to go with this. Yeah, like, who's the dude who thought that'd be a good idea? Hey, you know, we know Marvel backed away from doing it Infinity War Part 1 and 2, but, you know, we're better than them. So we're just going to let you do the Dune 1 and 2. It's, you know, it's, it's the, the curse of Warner Brothers. The, the auteur says something and they're like, yes, let's do that. And then later um, on, the money people come around and be like, why? Why did y'all do that? I will also, uh, this is also my reiteration and, and uh, reminder to everyone that the uh, original 1980s Dune um, is available to stream on HBO Max. So you can catch up on that version. Although, although as Dune purist and Dune enthusiast will tell you, you should um, 
really just go search out and check out the uh, the 2009, late 1999, 2000 sci-fi channel uh, TV series or miniseries, which is which is to them a far better interpretation of the material. And if you can't handle either one of those, probably don't go see Dune. Or watch it from the from the comfort of your couch where you can pause it and take bathroom breaks. How long was that sci-fi miniseries? I think it was I think it was a standard like three or four, two, two or four, is it two parts or four parts? I can't remember for which. But it's on YouTube, I think. Um, it was literally on the original on the sci-fi channel. And it was it was apparently really close to source material, but that's what you can do when you have hours to tell a story and not just two. Yeah, that's um I remember when that came out and I knew next to nothing about Dune. I still know next to nothing about Dune, so I didn't watch it. But the people that I know that didn't know stuff about Dune, they did say that that was the best version that they'd seen up to that point. And don't forget that there's also a documentary about uh, uh, about the Dune movie that was never made. Um, so there's that too. So this movie, this, this book has a very troubled production history. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, hearing you describe it and then knowing the the financial commitment, something like that's going to take, and then just not understanding it, not really knowing, you know, there's a fan base for it, but is it going to latch on with anybody else? That That's the thing. Uh, and we're going to find out soon enough. If it's not 117 million overseas already, you're about maxed out at what you what you're gonna do overseas. I mean, you're gonna get more as your run goes on, but you're gonna need the domestic market to pick you pick you up a bit. And the domestic market really isn't gonna pick you up a bit when they can sit at home and watch it on HBO Max, especially when the critical reviews are not great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I don't know. We'll 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 see. Uh, I'm. Along with the box office numbers, I'm really intrigued to see what um, what HBO Max numbers, if any, we get from Warner Brothers, or what what spin they give us from it. Indeed. So, Chad, I saw a Bond movie, and then I frantically texted you and yelled at people as I was leaving the theater out my window, letting them know the ending to the movie and spoiling it for them. <laughs> um, so, Chad, let's talk about No Time to Die and the thing that does not compute for you. Full spoiler warning is advanced here. So if you'd like to go get your chips and salsa and do the Mark Sanchez tango while me and uh, Chad uh, discuss No Time to Die here, please have your cocktail shaken, not stirred. Enjoy yourself. And spoiler warning over. Okay, so, Chad... What does not compute for you about that ending? Um, mostly that they offed James Bond. I mean, you did say spoiler, so if you heard me say that, it is your fault. It's completely your fault, fault at this point. Because I've always, I've just been of the mind um, when when I talk about superhero movies and replacing people. Like these movies don't ever have to end. You can just replace them and keep going. And I always cite the James Bond model. I'm like, look, they've been telling the same story for 60 years. They just swap out the guy, everything updates, but nobody really mentions it. 
this is just how we do things and you can keep going and nobody's going to care you can keep making telling these same stories so for this incarnation to be like no because they rebooted the the franchise basically with casino royale and from casino royale until no time to die it seems like they've decided that this is this james bond and this is this is his slice of james bond we're not doing the whole continuing timeline thing so that's that's a big change i don't know if it's a a change that will be permanent for them if they just did it for this one but it just shifted the james bond paradigm for me i'm not saying it's good or bad it's just not what i'm used to and i so much so that i never thought this would be the way they did it so this is me giving golf claps to barbara broccoli and the team at behind the uh, james bond franchise for doing what christopher nolan could not what christopher nolan had the balls not to do he had the perfect opportunity, Chad. He made me believe for a full 10 minutes that he had actually done something bold and different. And then he took it all away and showed me Bruce Wayne and Catwoman sitting at a French cafe with Albert about ready to cry. Meanwhile, I had just seen a statue erected and a very nice poem read for Batman. Like, he killed Batman but kept Bruce Wayne alive, which is ironic for Nolan, because Nolan didn't give two shits about a Bruce Wayne, but it's just me. Okay? They did the impossible. And they earned it. The film earns that ending. And it literally, at one point in the final act, they literally say, this is a suicide mission. You will not leave this place. And you think it's James Bond. Of course the man's going to leave the place because he's got a jetpack or something. Nope. Dude, don't leave that place. Dude not only dies, but he dies sacrificing himself for a woman that he loves and for his child. Yes, that's right. For the first time in the history of the Bond franchise, he shagged a woman and got her pregnant, and we see the child, and he meets the child and peels an apple and gives it to the child and watches it as if man watching ape play around in the dark garden for the first time. Like, dude, they did things they've never done before, and they tell an amazing story. Now, look, there are problems with the, with the film, of course. Um, not all the specifics of the poison and the nanobots that enter your body and they're biologically programmed uh, to a certain DNA and all these kind of things. It doesn't always click. It doesn't always work. But Rooney Malik is an interesting villain who does have no beef whatsoever with James Bond. His deal is nothing to do with James Bond. His deal is with Lisa Sado's character from Spectre because they have a history but really, his whole thing has nothing to do with Bond. It's all about the world domination of releasing this bioweapon into the into civilization, which, again, very interesting, a communicable bioweapon that ki- basically kills its uh, kills people who it's by DNA targeted to, 
you know, in the time of COVID. But the film has so much to say, man. It it it, it talks about the industri- the industrial um, uh, the military industrial complex. It talked because the whole thing is stolen from a secret lab run by the British intelligence service. They've been developing this weapon for the better part of 10 years and it's stolen from them and then used on Spectre to kill off Spectre because Spectre had had a hand in killing his family. And then it's used or threatened to be used in a worldwide way. Okay. So it's commenting on that. It's commenting on world governments not interacting very well with one another. The, the island where the plant is, is a, they make it very clear that it is in Russian waters. And that it's a very covert thing because they don't want to start a, a, an international war, an international incident. And then they get to a point where they have to blow up the plant. There's no way around it. They have to order a missile strike and they have to blow up the plant. Well, a giant missile strike in Cuban, in Russian waters is going to gain the attention of the Russians and the Chinese and everybody else. So, like, it focuses on, talks about international relations in the way that Q, that uh, M has to talk and communicate with these others. It talks about the legacy of the title of 007. It, it, it's a movie that literally has Daniel Craig say the line, 007 is just a number. And it goes without the moniker 007 for like three-fourths of the movie. It's not until they're getting ready, they're deep into the third act, and they're getting ready to go on the mission to the to the nuclear facility where he gets his code name back. And he only gets his code name back because it is uh, given to him by her. She relinquishes l- 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 the title and asks for it to be reinstated to him. And when you get to the end and you see him put his daughter, who he, by that point, fully understands that it's his daughter, puts her on a boat, and on a submarine, and puts his, her, his jacket around her and looks longingly as the submarine goes off, it, it's a very touching moment. And it does something that Marvel does has done really well and that if you look at that 10 the the 20 films that make up the MCU from Iron Man to Endgame what you really see is the evolution of two separate characters you see two separate intertwining stories one is the story of Steve Rogers and the other is the story of, of Tony Stark and those are the two stories that carry the MCU. And those are the main two stories that come together in Endgame. And it culminates in going from I am Iron Man to I am Iron Man. And it tells a complete story for Tony. Tony goes from a wisecracking asshole reporter sleeping with guy to saving the world with a snap. And you see that evolution. And that snap is final. We don't get Tony Stark back. It's the same way here. They both started two a year, uh, two years apart. Casino Royale was 2006. Iron Man was 2008. Mm-hmm. 
but they do the same thing. And the one thing about this Craig series of Batman films is, or Craig series of Bond films is that they understand like love is the defining factor about this bond. He is seeking love, not sexual satisfaction, not misogyny, not a one night stand. He's searching for love. And he thinks that he finds it in, um, in Casino Royale. And then it's taken from him in um, Quantum of Solace. And then he rediscovers it in Spectre. And, uh, and, and well, and then Q, um, you know, M, uh, Dame Judy Dench basically resets his parental understanding and his understanding of love and the concept of love in Skyfall. And then he rediscovers love in Spectre. And Spectre ends with him driving off into the sunset with the woman of his dreams off to Italy to live a good life. And then you pick up right there at the end of Spectre at the beginning of No Time to Die and you go forward from there and then there's a five-year jump. And so like the story of this Craig series of, of events is different inherently in the sense that it's a continuity. It's an actual beginning to end story that has a beginning, middle, and end for the character and for every other character in the franchise. And that's something that Brosman didn't have. It's something that none of them have had. You know, Brosman had different female leads in every movie and acted like Goldeneye never happened when he made No Time to Die, uh, when he made uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. You know, so it, it, it's an interesting and bold choice for them. And, it, and I was thrilled with this film because it talked about male masculinity, about sacrifice, about love, and about what it means to truly love something and to love something enough to die for it. And we've always seen the loyalty to country that the Bond character has always portrayed. But to see, to see him question that and be like, look, guys, you made a bioweapon and didn't exactly secure it very well. This is your mess. Now I got to go clean it up. But at the same time, learning and embracing the woman that he loves and what it means to love her enough to give that up because of the separation, because of the poisoning and all of that. So, I mean, I, I really, truly love this Bond to the fact that, like, I, I am seriously considering buying the full Craig set because it is a full story. I have no interest in any of the other Bonds because they're not complete stories. You know, Brosman is in a different place at the end of his last movie than he is in his first movie, but he's the same guy in every one of them. Craig is a different guy across getting in, because in, in, you have to think about it. He goes from getting his license to kill to dying across the series of five movies over the course of 12 years. That's a lot of character growth and emotional growth and arc that I can get behind. And I wish uh, more people understood that that was the right way and that they earned that particular fate for that particular bond. Yeah, it... I still think it, it's still going to take a while for me to wrap my head around 
yeah, what you said. This bond has a beginning, middle, end. We, we, we know where it starts. We know where it ends. And eventually, I'm gonna watch No Time to Die. I don't know when that's gonna be. Uh, I think I do want to watch the other Cray Bond movies again. It's uh, very much like Endgame, Chad, in that there are bits and pieces of the of the other four movies that are referenced that will only make sense to you if you've been a fan and seen. Like there are things in Endgame that like make me and you mark out because we've seen a majority of these. Mm-hmm. Those get overlooked and missed by just the guy who's like, "Yay, Captain America holds the horse hammer!" Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's the same way here. Every little bit of the continuity of every one of the films is mentioned. They don't act like Quantum of Solace never happened. They don't. They include it. They make references to it. You know, and it, that's the great thing, man. Actual story continuity in a in a James Bond universe. I mean, I am a I'm a continuity hawk, so this does go up my alley. Uh, I kind of I wish they didn't reference Quantum of Solace. I don't want to watch that one again, but you know, I guess I will. But I'm, I'm when I get in the right frame of mind and I can have time to watch them all. I want to do that. And then watch the the end, then watch uh, No Time to Die to to really see if I appreciate what they're going for. I think I, I mean I think I will. I, I I like continuity. I respect continuity. I, I sometimes I'm overly slavish to continuity, but James Bond. Was sometimes good. thirty years later, creators answer questions that help you deal with continuity issues. Y- yes, they do. That there really is like a create. It's it's like a burden lifts it off my back. It really is, because that really it's bothered me since I was a child, and now it's gone. It's like I'm, it, it's a freedom I've never known. But anyway, uh, J- James Bond was just never my place I went to for continuity. It was, was just, you know, it's, we're just going to tell the stories and forget everything else. There is a loose continuity. These things have happened, but we're not going to be uh, beholden to anything. It's just James Bond has always existed, and these are the adventures he's gone on, and he will continue to go on adventures. Now we have a a chunk of James Bond that is just onto itself. A chunk of James Bond that ends with the man being blown up definitively. You watch the man's body burn. Dude's cool. dead. What's the number one rule of, of cinema? If you don't see a body, it and never happened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if they, yeah. If they show you a body, that's it. It's done. They want you to know it's over. And and that's just the beauty of it, man. And I'm sure the fanboys on the internet will get pissy about James Bond having a daughter and that daughter living and surviving, that daughter being able to grow up. But, you know... I also appreciate the fact that like I get now why Broccoli and them were like, yeah, we're gonna let Craig run with this for a while. Like we're in no hurry. We're not in a place where they like need to go get another bond with this year or next year. Like we can take our time. And when we do, it'll be a different thing. Yeah. Uh that I I think I heard the comment about, you know, we're they weren't gonna start looking for a new bond for a while. They wanted to let uh Daniel's bond breathe for a minute and now that that statement makes the most the more it makes more sense now since we know that uh 
how he meets his end. So, yeah, give it a while before you start it all up again. Yeah, and, and like, this has been my argument with Marvel, too, is, like, the one death that needs to stay having the ramifications that it does is Tony. And if you want to make, you want to pay Downey a couple million dollars to come in and do voice work for Ironheart, where he's the voice of the AI, that's that's fine. But, like, I don't need that guy in to come back. You know, just like Caesar dying at the end of the Apes trilogy made all the sense in the world. And I loved that Apes trilogy because it built so much mythology around everything. That trilogy starts with Charlton Heston's mission taking off from Earth. It, it acknowledges that event and then it shows you how we got to that place. And it doesn't take the time to like show you the decay of mankind. It, it takes the opportunity to show you the growth of the apes mm-hmm. and how there's an inner, an inner war really between the apes about how to treat humans. Because Koba has a very distinct way of dealing with humans from his past traumas and experiences. And Caesar has another and the two have to meet. And that's what that trilogy is about, about which way are we going to go? Are we going to be supportive of the humans or are we going to eradicate them? And I love that they, that the only way that trilogy could have ended was with Caesar having accomplished his mission and leading his people the way in a, in a mosaic way, and then dying, having seen it to its full conclusion. He literally leads the apes that are left to the, his promised land. And I, I just, I love that kind of continuity of storytelling where we see one character go from young ape to grow to death. Go from getting your license to kill to, you know, uh, to dying, to, to sacrificing your life for the God, country, and woman. Um, you know, Looking you go from sleeping with reporters and making snippy comments about weapons of mass destruction to I am Iron Man and snapping half of the existence back into it. Like, I, I enjoy when great actors like Downey, like Craig, uh, like... Uh, uh, Oh, uh, uh, Andy Serkis, when they get the opportunity, Toby Kibble as well, to play these characters over multiple films and home their character and define it in a very real way. You know, Keaton only got two shots at Batman. You know, it, it, it I would have been, I would love to see what he could have done with the third album. But like, I love when an actor gets a chance to take on a role for multiple films and does something with it and doesn't just copy and paste their performance from the previous movie and the next one. And a lot of that has to do with the writing because the writing has the script and the story has to grow with the actor. And if, if it doesn't, then, you know, it, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. I don't, I don't, no, I actually have much to offer other than that. I think you put it succinctly. Yeah, and it, I saw Halloween Kills last night, and it's nice to be back in the theater every Thursday night. It's it's been a solid month now that I've been in the theater every Thursday night, and it's it's a it's my happy place, and I'm I'm glad for that. I mean, the movie last night was okay; it wasn't great. I have fundamental problems. One of the things that I love about No Time to Die, if you take it even out of the Bond element of it, it is clearly structured in a way that is is 
accelerant. You clearly have a defined first act, second act, third act to the point where you have blacked out reels. Like, you know, that's old school, but you know, I love that when a film will like literally do fade to black for your first, second, and third act. But like, it has a propelling structure to it. I love the way that film is structured. I'm a nerd about those kind of things. Halloween Kills is not structured very well. And the motivations are not great. And the actions of, of, uh, Michael Myers were not structured in a way that is, I feel consistent, but like the problem that I have with that movie is you built on a premise in the 2018 Halloween movie of is this just an animalistic thing between Lori and Michael? Are, is, are they in a symbiotic relationship can one survive without the other or do both have to go down in order for the cycle to end? And you, you, you go from that very interesting angle and you layer it on top of it, the PTSD and the trauma and how someone like Lori Strode would have raised their child. And you go from how she would have raised her child to how that child would have raised their child and the effect that that would have had on the granddaughter and all these things and the atonement and the forgiveness from mother to daughter and, and the acceptance, you layer all that on top of that central question of, is it an animalistic symbiotic circle? And you get a really good film. Well, the, the, the ideal in a sequel to me anyway, would be that you build on that notion and Instead, what you do is you kind of throw that completely out the window. You take Jamie Lee Curtis almost completely out of the movie because she's, you know, you, you put it in the immediate aftermath of the previous movie. So she's got a big ass stab wound and it's just come out of having surgery for six and a half hours. So like she physically can't very limitedly get out of the hospital bed. So right off the bat, you take away the thing that people want to see which is Laurie Strode versus Michael Myers. The two never interact in this movie, period. They don't do it. And so instead of building on the themes that they started off with the second one, first one, they veer very heavily into Halloween, what, what I call um, nostalgia place, bringing back small bit characters from other films that were had ha, were affected in some way by Michael Myers over the years, which again I just praise the nostalgia plays of um, of No Time to Die, but these aren't used effectively. This movie has a good ten minute dial five to eight minute dialogue scene, just of Anthony Michael Hall talking about the boogeyman and reiterating the story and explaining who the other people are. And the other people are, are people who have been affected by Michael, but they're really just there to die. <laughs> and so it really doesn't, I don't really need this five to eight minutes. If you have to explain why these legacy characters are important to me, I don't need them in the film. And then the other part of it too, is when you layer, you're, you, you've abandoned this animalistic symbiotic circle PTSD theme for a theme about the town 
and a very ham-fisted, not well-constructed argument about the mob mentality. They literally have a man, another escaped inmate from the insane asylum, get mob murdered. The mob forces him onto the side of a building and he jumps and he kills himself because he's cornered by the mob and he's a mentally impaired man. And so you're trying to very ham-fistedly talk about social media, talk about the mob mentality, talk, I guess, in some in some way about uh, Me Too and Time's Up and, and all of the social justice movements and and assuming things about people and their backgrounds. And like, there's literally a scene where Anthony Michael Hall's character is standing over the dead body, the mangled dead body of this man who's just jumped from a building committing suicide because he was trapped and says, well, they're all like, that's not him, that can't be him. And he's like, well, we, how do we know? He's always worn a mask, this could be him for all we know, trying to justify the things that they had just done and then two minutes after that conversation goes to Lori Strode's daughter and is like, my bad. I apologize. Really shouldn't have done that. Can we be cool, please? Like, it, it's not, you're not hitting on any of the same things. You're taking away the one thing the audience wants to see. And the mindlessness of the violence in this is not as, like, it's not as calculated and, per, and precise as what it was in the last one. And now you're setting up for a definitive end because the movie is literally called Halloween Ends and we'll start with a time jump, which is needed if you're going to have Laurie Strode act and, and granddaughter fight this, uh, fight the boogeyman one more time. Um, I'm also interested because it seems to me that they're setting up for the granddaughter to take the legacy over because the granddaughter, I shit you not, in the course of an evening loses her boyfriend Loses, loses her best friend, her father, her boyfriend, and her mother over the course of one Halloween night. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like really uh, telegraphing what they want to do. I mean, which I guess is fine. If you, But don't you agree, Chad, that if you're going to do the, the, the social justice, like, mob mentality story which shifts away from what you were doing in the first movie that you have to be subtle about it or, or unique about it you can't just be like mob's going to corner man into side of hospital and then push him over and then have regrets because they realize it's not the person they were chasing I, I don't know about subtle uh subtlety yeah subtlety can work if you trust your audience so there's nothing wrong with being subtle but i do think you need to be you know clear if you're going to be either way you have to be clear so if 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 the direction of this one seems to be like in contrast to what they did before then yes they need to be clear about why they're doing it this way and subtlety might not be the best but they might want it to they may have wanted to believe they were being subtle because a lot of people think when you have when you do these topics like social justice and stuff that that can be deep. If you're doing it subtly, then you're really smart. You're making things smarter because you're doing these heavy things in a subtle way. You're not like beating people over the head with it. Uh, and I think your your things can suffer if that's the case, because if subtlety is not working, 
are getting lost in translation, just go with the message you're trying to send and forget subtlety. Make the best story you can. And to me, the story is like they literally not once, not twice, but three times reiterate that Michael will come to the hospital because it's it's playing back to this animalistic symbiotic relationship that Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Laurie Strode, has a soliloquy at the end about it not being a symbiotic relationship that she looks upon the people who've committed this crime of this mob murder and like Michael's winning because the fear is propagated. Now, I have an issue with that because as a film, you're getting into George W. Bush territory. Um, We in this country never really reconciled with the fact that a war on terrorism was a war on ideology. And the problem with an ideology is it outlasts any one person and you can never effectively kill it off. You can make yourself feel good by killing the person who attacked you in the first place or even attack killing several of the people who helped plan that attack in the first place. But you will never be able to defeat the ideology. And on top of the that, the ideology will not be transparent. You know, in World War II, Nazis very clearly identified themselves as fascists and Nazis. <laughs> it was very easy to go get the guy with the armband with the swastika on it. That wasn't the case. And so in this context, when you create this new situ- this situation where Michael is the embodiment of fear, there's literally, I kid you not, I kid you not, Jeb, there is literally a time in this movie at the end where the mob finally does get their hands on Michael Myers and proceeds to kick him and beat him and stab him and beat him with a baseball bat. And then magically somehow with a sleight of hand camera edit, he resurrects himself and starts murdering everybody who just tried to kill him. And the the thing is that Lori's explanation is that he is the embodiment of fear. And that fear, like he represents and feeds on and is manifested by fear. And my problem with that is when you bring in that kind of supernatural element to it, fear is an emotion. You can't defeat an emotion. You can overcome an emotion, but you can't physically defeat the emotion because the emotion is always going to be there. Universally, we are all always going to be afraid. There's always something that is going to bring that emotion out in us. And so if you say that he's the embodiment of fear, how can he ever be defeated if if he's that emotion? So I, I hear you saying that. So are are you saying that this movie did like they told us they told you that he's embodiment of fear, but did it like really hit on that's what they were trying to do? No, that's literally the, just the end of the movie. Okay. The end of the movie is literally just him him getting beaten to death by the mob, and then him right right a, a slick camera edit, and then he's killing all these people. And a voiceover of Lori talking about how, you know, he's the embodiment of fear, which is a different explanation for her and his relationship than what they were giving in the first movie, which is, again, an issue. 
I see, I see. Because at the end, if you're building toward a final fight at the Myers home with Lori and granddaughter, how can that be a successful fight if he's the embodiment of fear? How can you kill fear? How can you kill extremism? How can you kill terrorism? You can't. It's just you can kill a person, but they've made it very clear he's not a person. That is, yeah. That, uh, I mean, like the war on terror, it's very hard to fight an ideal uh, unless they are going to become an ideal themselves. With metaphorically, unless speaking. unless you're winning hearts and minds, yeah. and unless you're doing like the groundwork in the the getting into the core of changing the belief systems that have been around for thousands of years, you're not gonna. You're not going to be successful. So are we just going to have like a giant diplomatic summit between Lloyd Strode and, and Michael Myers? Because like that's pretty much the only way. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, let's. Um, have they actually greenlit the, the third one? Yes. Okay. So. Uh, I am as, I'm curious or as curious as a person that's never going to see these movies as can be about how they reconcile the thoughts they presented in the first to the second and see if they could stick it all together in the third. I mean, there's a way you could have done the PTSD element and been like, yeah, there are a lot of people in this town who've lost a lot of people to Michael Myers over the years and they'd like a piece of them or they'd, but in that scenario, what I would have had them do is rally around the daughter and granddaughter to help them fight Michael. Mm -hmm. Or I would have had Michael, in a continuation of the story that we were telling before, make his way to the hotel, to the hospital. Michael doesn't go to the hospital. Michael never shows up at the hospital. He never comes for Lori. He just goes to his house and sits in his sister's room where he committed that murder all those years ago. Like, you know, it's just, yeah. <laughs> like, I would have rather the, the town come together and rally behind Lori and rally around her daughter and her granddaughter and help them take him on. And it could have been an Infinity War situation where you lose the first time and you come back the second time. But, you know, you, it, that to me would have been a better story than crazy town going mad than back to the story of the three Strode women. Yeah, I like yours. Brother. So that'll about do it for this week's podcast. If you want to follow this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at BCW Tiger Fan, and I will see Dune on Thursday. I'm at The Mesh Theory, and I will not. Thank you very much. And this is your reminder that Mark Sanchez is an available coach for hire for any major university and Power 5 football program that exists, which includes the University of Southern California and the University of Louisiana State. One of these days, I'm going to cut all that out. Thank you very much, and have a pleasant evening.